0: Okay, well, we've been studying through the book of Genesis, um, and we've kind of come as far as chapters 10 and 11, but we're going to have a break from Genesis for a while before we get into chapters 10 and 11 for the next um, four weeks or so. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a study on Passion Week. Now, this is something that's been very kind of close to my heart for many years. It's something I started off as just as a kind of curiosity thing many years ago and started digging in. And the more I've uh, looked at the details, the more I've just been absolutely just blown away with the design in God's Word. This four-part study, we're going to see that it's demonstrating the supernatural origin of the Bible and God's complete control of history. You know, we live in a world that people like to, to mock those that believe in the Bible. Well, really, they're the ones that are foolish because the Bible is just so incredible. And we'll look at some of those things this morning. When they're going to go on next week, we'll look at the timing and the details of Passion Week. Passion Week, if you're not familiar with that term, it's the the title we give to that last week that Jesus spent with his disciples leading up to the crucifixion and ultimately on that, as we refer to it, Easter Day, uh, Resurrection Sunday, I prefer to to use the term, um, but that day when Jesus rose again. Um, So we'll be looking at that next week. Um, And again, it's the most important week in human history. Uh, We'll talk more about that in a while. Um, Then we're going to look at the accuracy and harmony of the Gospels. Critics like to say that the Gospels contradict each other. Well, most of the time it's because they've never actually read them. Um, But when you do read them, you see that there's a beauty, there's a harmony, and there's some real wonderful insights that we can glean by looking at the account of these things as we have this kind of fourfold picture um, that these Gospel writers paint for us. And then we're going to conclude this uh, little mini-series by looking at the reality and the power of the resurrection. You know, the resurrection is one of the most attested and best facts of history. Uh, People don't know that. People think the resurrection is just a belief thing. But there is really good, solid historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Paul makes a comment. He speaks about the power of the resurrection. Well, one of the things that we're going to be doing is going to look at what actually does that mean? What is the power of the resurrection? So that's what's coming. So for this morning, though, part one of this uh, little mini study, uh, we are gonna look at the supernatural origin of the Bible and God's complete control of history. Now, Chuck Misler, some years ago, made this statement. He said, since God has the technology to create us, he certainly has the means to get a message to us. You know, God has created us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I was thinking the other day about, you know, when Adam was created and even, you know, they're starting to kind of get to grips with this world that's around them. You know, they'd have had to discover the, for the first time, you know, all the complexities of our, our human bodies, you know, our lungs and our heart and things we kind of know and, and understand that we've kind of grown up with. But all these things have been discovered and God has laid so many things down for us to learn. But you know, God has created, the Bible's Psalms, we're told that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, if God can create as such, then surely God can communicate with his creation. But the, the real question then is, how does God authenticate his message? So that we know that it's really from him and not a contrivance or a fraud. You know, we've got lots of religious books in the world. You know, there's the Quran, and you've got the writings um, for the Hindus and you've got all sorts of other groups and religions around the world that all have their own holy books and writings and so on and philosophies. You know, and all of them would claim that they contain some truth, certainly, or some of them would claim that they are all truth and that everything else is false. Yeah, so how do we know that what we have in the pages of the Bible really is from God? Well, a couple of quotes for you. Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table. But place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly hopelessly. That was Professor Montario Williams who made that statement, just looking at the Bible and looking at other religious writings. You can see the note at the bottom. He spent 42 years studying these things. And his conclusion is the Bible is utterly unique. There's nothing like the Bible. I mean, the Bible speaks with authority about where we came from, what we're doing here, and where we're going. It gives us all the answers, all the information that we need for this life. I love this quote. This book had to be written by one of three people. Good men, bad men, or God. It couldn't have been written by good men because... They said it was inspired by the revelation of God and good men don't lie and don't deceive. It couldn't have been written by bad men because bad men would not write something that would condemn themselves. It leaves only one conclusion. It was given by divine inspiration of God. John Wesley said that. And I think that, that that's just a very simple summary. This book is, is incredible and it has been given to us by God. And God himself makes that statement as well, that God is unique. He says in Isaiah 46, through the prophet Isaiah, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. Well, that's a narrow-minded dogmatic saying is a statement, isn't it? But I think God's in the position to be able to do that. He says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This is what God says. You see, that statement, declaring the end from the beginning, how does God do that? Well, in the Bible, we've got direct and specific prophecy. You know, prophecy is incredible because it is history recorded in advance. I've said this many times. Prophecy is not prediction. It's not a guess about what may be. Prophecy is the future recorded before we get there. And the only way that can happen is if someone could be outside of time. And record it for us. And God has done that and recorded it in his word. And states that he's done it. But we've also got types and shadows. What do we mean by that? Well, we're speaking of an event that occurs, a real historical event, that anticipates something that is yet to occur in the future. It's like a model in advance of the real thing. Now, now we're familiar with that. If, we, if we're going to build something, I work in London near a, a building. They, they have lots of little models of things they're going to build. And it's got the whole London landscape laid out. It's quite interesting, actually, looking at all these things. But they'll build a model of a new skyscraper before they actually build the real thing. But the Bible does the same thing. It gives us these models in advance of what God was going to do later on. And we're going to look at some of those things this morning. And, and the Bible specifically actually declares this to be the case. In Hosea chapter 12 verses 10, verse 10, it says, God speaking, I have also spoken by the prophets and I've multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Now that word there we have similitudes literally just means it's a model, it's a something, it's a likeness or a type of something. Now we've got a number of these that we could point to just to kind of give us a flavor of this. The whole situation with Adam and Eve. Now in 1st Timothy chapter 2, we're told something very interesting because we're told that Adam was not deceived. That means Adam ate of the fruit willingly. Why would he do that? Just well, remember when we were going through Genesis, we looked at this. Adam made that decision because he wanted to join his bride in her predicament to rescue her. Already it was clear that the only way there could be some sort of deliverer was if a seed of the woman would come. Well, unless Adam joined Eve in her predicament, there would be no chance of any offspring. So, just as Christ left his position to come to this earth, effectively becoming sin for us, so that he could save his bride, so Adam did. Of course, Adam's the original, that's what the the type or model was, the fulfillment of that is seen in Jesus Christ and his bride of course we've got the situation with Abraham and Isaac Abraham as God the father as the type of Isaac as the son and by the way Isaac wasn't some small child as often is depicted in Sunday school books Isaac may have been anything up to about 33 years of age and some scholars think that he would have been about 33 well they head off if you remember Abraham's told to take his son his only son now of course there was Ishmael but as far as God was concerned there was just one Child that God had promised to Abraham. And for three days Isaac is as dead to Abraham, knowing that he's been told to go and offer him up on this mountain. The mountain happens to be a mountain called Moriah. You and I know that better as Calvary. Abraham literally takes Isaac to Calvary, and he's about to offer him up there. And Isaac has the wood strapped to his back. And God at that point obviously is Isaac then is laying on this altar that Abraham has built, God steps in and says no. And he makes a statement that, that, in fact, Abraham previously said that God will provide himself a lamb. And Abraham names the place prophetically in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Abraham seemingly understanding that he was acting out some sort of prophecy in advance. The whole of that account, a real account that happened historically, was all looking forward to what would be accomplished with God the Father with his own son on Calvary some 2,000 years after that event. With Joseph, I mean, there's over a hundred different ways that Joseph is a type of Christ. One of the obvious ways is, I mean, Joseph, there is no sin mentioned of Joseph. Now, I'm not saying he was sinless, but the Bible doesn't record any sin for Joseph. But he was rejected by his brethren and then exalted to sit at the right hand of the highest authority. And many, many other ways also that Joseph prefigures Jesus in terms of characteristics and things that he did and so on. Jonah. Well, Jesus himself points to this as an example. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, the great fish, so Jesus said he also will be three days three nights in the heart of the earth. And then we've got the Feasts of Israel, and that's something that's really interesting to us in regard to this study. Leviticus 23 lists these seven specific feasts, these festivals Israel were to celebrate. And each of those feasts, they were real events that Israel were to celebrate. Every one of them pointing forward to something yet to come. Now, Paul makes this point for us in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respects of a holy day, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. Or literally the fulfillment is of Christ. Paul says that these feasts, these holy days, that's where we get our word holiday from, holy days. These holy days that were to be set aside, these Sabbaths were a shadow of things to come. They were the the, the type looking forward to the real fulfillment, which, as Paul says here, is all in Christ. And that's very significant as we'll go on to see. Now, for Israel, they had 70 Sabbaths. We're kind of familiar with the the Saturday Sabbath that the Jews celebrate. But according to the law of Moses, there were 70. There were 52 weekly Sabbaths, of course. There were seven days of Passover. There was one day for the Feast of Pentecost. There was the first day of the Feast of Trumpets there. And there was a day for the Feast of Atonement. Another seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles. There was the eighth day of assembly, as it's referred to. All of that combined adds up to 70. Now, you may have noticed previously that this was all based upon the lunar calendar. The the, the sun and the moon, but particularly the moon was that which they used to help them know when they should be celebrating their feasts. And it's just as an interesting little aside here, that back in Genesis, when God creates the sun and the moon, he says, let them be for signs and for seasons. Now the word translated seasons in the Hebrew is hamoyedim, it means the appointed times. God literally says, let the sun and moon be there for the appointed times, for the times that he was going to give, specifically to Israel. Now, You may have heard of equidistant letter sequences. There's so many of them throughout the Bible. But this word, Hamoyedim, statistically should occur in the text, at different letter sequences, at least five times in the book of Genesis. There's 78,064 letters in the book of Genesis, so it should statistically occur about five times. The incredible thing is it only occurs once, it happens to be, And an equidistant letter sequence of 70, i.e. you take the first letter, count forward 70 letters, you've got the second letter, count forward another 70 letters, you've got the, so on. And it happens to be centred on this very verse in Genesis that speaks about these appointed times. The chance has been estimated estimated to be 70 million to one that that could occur by random chance. They're just little fingerprints of design we see all through the Bible. But anyway, getting on to these appointed times. The ones that we're most interested in in regard to this study are the first three. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits. Of course, the Feast of Passover was what Jesus was going to Jerusalem to celebrate with his disciples. The disciples probably didn't think much more of it than that, but Jesus knew that there was something far bigger that was being accomplished. If we go into Leviticus 23, we read there, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the Feast of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts. We're told first of all about the daily Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest. A holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is a Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Now notice they're told that they're not to do any work on their weekly Sabbath. It's a day of rest. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you proclaim in their seasons at their appointed times. And then we're told, specifically, the the first of these seven calendar feasts they have. In the 14th day of the first month, at even, is the Lord's Passover. And then we're told, that's the first of these, the next one, on the 15th day of the month, then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Now, we're specifically told here, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And this leads some people to think that from the 15th, we start a seven-day count. No, that's not the case. You'll see that in a minute. There is a seven-day period, but it actually starts on the 14th. The whole of that is in included. We're told in the first day you should have a holy convocation, but now we're told you shall do no servile work. Not you shall do no work, but no work for which you'll be remunerated. So you could do certain tasks, but you certainly couldn't go and do something that you get paid for. Now that's interesting because when we come to the New Testament, and the details we'll look at, more specifically, next week, in regards to Passion Week, we come to a day that's called the Day of Preparation, which was itself a feast day. But it was a day when they could get things ready. We'll look at the details of that. Sorry, let just go back to the end of that verse. But you should offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. And in the seventh day is a holy convocation. You should do no servile work therein. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, "Speak to the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you be coming to the land which I give unto you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And you shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you." And we're told the details here: on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priests shall wave it. So this is the feast of first fruits, and we're we're given specific details of when it was going to occur. We'll come back to this in a short while. Now, before we go any further, I just want to underline again that what we have here with the Bible is an integrated message system. We've got some 66 separate books, 70 if you break Psalm into five. book of Psalms is actually five books compiled, so to keep the sevens there, 70 books. But but we've got 40 or so different authors. It's written over certainly around a 1600 years time frame. And we've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds. A lot of them never met each other. But we can prove that it has origin from outside our time domain because of the way everything interlinks. There's no way a man could have achieved what we have in the Bible. And all of these shadows and types of models and things that we see worked in here. Now, as I said already, this week, Passion Week, is the most important week in human history. This was what it was all about. You know, we we celebrate at Christmas time Jesus coming into this world as a baby and so on. But it was all about this one week. It was the sole reason that Jesus came. John's Gospel, we've got the first 12 chapters or so that deal with the first three and a half years of his ministry. The rest of the book just deals with one week. Everything was centered on this week. So important for us to understand. And in Revelation 13 verse 8 we just read a, a phrase there, and all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, speaking of the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. You see, even before God had begun creating, it was foreordained that Jesus would be, as it were, a sacrificial lamb, pay for the sins of the world. And it all took place in this one week. Hebrews 10 verse 7 says then said I lo I come in the volume of the book it is written of me speaking of Jesus everything in the Bible speaks of Jesus but notice specifically what it speaks of to do thy will O God well what was God's will what was it that Jesus had come to do John 4 34 says Jesus said unto them my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work it wasn't just about Jesus being obedient of course he was He was obedient to the death on the cross. Again, this week, so, so important. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the whole reason that Jesus came was not to give us all the teaching and everything else, which is great, that's good, but it was to die on the cross to pay for our sin. It was to fulfill the events that take place during this week, of which today, for us, Palm Sunday, is the beginning of that period of time. Everything that happened over the next seven days, had all been foreordained, recorded in the Old Testament, in models and types and so on. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, Jesus came for this reason. Now, before we go any further, I want to just show you another one of these models and types that's just wonderful, because it's another one of the feasts, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Pentecost as we we tend to know it or refer to it as. Now, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Dr. Luke there records for us, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now that's interesting on its own. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now J. Vernon McGee, some of you may be familiar with him, made this comment. He said, the words fully come could be translated fulfilled. When the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, they were all together in one place. You see, Pentecost was a celebration that the Jews had celebrated for many years. Some fourteen hundred years potentially since leaving Egypt and been given these laws and details and so on, but now it was being fulfilled. In Leviticus twenty-three, again we're told you should count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. So this is in Passion Week. You get to the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf, the wave offering. Even seven Sabbaths shall be complete. That's seven weeks. So it's 49 days from the day after, even the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number 50 days and you shall offer a new meal offering unto the Lord. So they're to get to the 50th day and then they're offering this offering. But notice what they're told, to offer a new meat offering, a new meat offering. This is just all very, very interesting when we start to look at this because... The first instruction is this new Micha, which is the Hebrew. It's an offering that was to be brought. And it was in the King James translated meat. But it was a sacrificial offering, usually bloodless and voluntary. Now that's interesting, and you'll see why. Because this feast, therefore, speaks of something new. Something new that God was doing. That was to be presented voluntarily to the Lord. And it says you should bring out of your habitations. Now that's interesting as well. Because this offering then is going to be something that was to be presented that was to come out of the houses of Israel. That's, that's what it's saying. You should bring out of your houses, out of the houses of Israel, two wave loaves, two tenth deals, and they should be a fine flour. They should be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Now ask you the question, where did the church come from? Did not the church come from out of Israel? The church started with, with Jews. The church came. This new thing that God did came from out of the houses of Israel. Notice that this brings two wave or loaves, two tenth deals. Two in scripture is always the number of witness. But interestingly also, there's an implication here that this may have to do with a double offering. Or sometimes people, a number of scholars think this has a reference to a double fulfillment. I'll mention that in just a moment. And notice that they should be a fine flour. Now, we might miss it here if we don't understand the details, but this fine flour was going to be carefully ground and sifted to remove all impurities, and the bran and the husks and everything else. Everything had to be ground down, absolutely pure. We could say without spot or blemish. Because in Ephesians, of the church, we're told, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. See, the church is to be as fine flour presented to our Lord. You see, and this is the only feast, by the way, where leaven is permitted to be used. It's a very non-Jewish thing. See, leaven speaks of sin. Because it corrupts by puffing up, 1 Corinthians five eight tells us that. But Israel were to be separate from the world, uncontaminated. That's why they were told to remove leaven from their houses for Passover. But you see, the church is different. The church is to grow to maturity, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2.15, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom we are to shine as lights in the world. Dake, in his excellent commentary, says this, No... Bread made with leaven could be burned upon the altar. So the object was not a burnt offering. This was a present to Jehovah from the best produce of the earth. See, the church also is not destined to be consumed on the altar of God's wrath, but instead is a gift from the Father to his Son, of those that the Father draws out of the world. Again, we're told of this harvest offering. That they have to be first fruits unto the Lord. Well, once again, Paul helps us join the dots. Sorry, James helps us join the dots. It says, of his own will begat, he asked, with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James specifically links the church to this offering of first fruits. Now notice again, very interesting, you should do no servile work therein. There's nothing that they could do to add in that sense to this. See, when a person is born again, they enter into their eternal rest in Christ. They're no longer to labor by their own effort for reward, for Christ has done it all. And the writer to the Hebrews comments, for he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. What a wonderful model and type. This Feast of Harvest that seems to depict so clearly the church. And again, is it any coincidence that the church begins on this very day? And there are scholars mention that idea of double fulfillment that think the church may also be raptured on the Feast of Harvest. I'll leave that with you to, to ponder. Very interesting how these models all speak of things that were yet to come. In incredible detail. Okay, let's jump in then to these appointed times and the ones we're most interested in for this study. So the feast of Passover, which is on the fourteenth. Of Nisan, the 14th of the month for them, the feast of unleavened bread, the very next day, and then the feast of first fruits, which we're told already was to be the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. Now we we'll see that it was always to be on a Sunday. In Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now do you remember we looked at this last week, I think it was, that God switched the calendar around so that what was once there. Seventh month now becomes their first month and so on. So they have their kind of their two calendars, their, their civil calendar in a sense and their religious calendar. And the one we're interested in is what well, typically occurs in our March or April time, uh, the month of Nisan or Aviv in the, the Hebrew. Again, speak to the congregation of Israel and say, in the tenth day of this month, they kind of want to make note of these things, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers a lamb for a house. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And thus you shall eat it, with your loins girded, with your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. As God said to them, he said, "For in, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And thou shall say unto Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will say, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Okay, so just a quick summary of what we just looked at. They were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month. They were to take a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish. And on the 14th day of that month, they were to kill the lamb in the evening. The whole assembly of the congregation was to do this. And the blood of the lamb was to be put on the lintels and the doorposts, and anyone who passed under that blood into the house will be safe from God's judgment upon the firstborn of the land. Now I'm sure you can already see some of the models and the types here that are fulfilled when we finally come to Passion Week and the real fulfillment of this feast. We'll look more in detail about that next week, but these are the feasts we're told in Leviticus 23. Of the Lord, even holy convocations which should proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month, at even, is the Lord's Passover. The fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. And we're told again, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Now, when we go to Exodus twelve, we're given a bit more clarification. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until, and we're really specific, the one and twenty twentieth day, the twenty-first day of the month at even. And so seven days, from the 14th and 21st, no leaven shall be found in your house. For whosoever eats that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be stranger or born in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations. You shall eat unleavened bread. So there was a seven-day period. Now, also, three times in the year, all males shall appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose. We're told, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread... Now, that's not speaking just of the 15th, which was the feast. One of the things we we struggle with when we start to look at this is we get a lot of terms that seem to be used, it can confuse us, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread here is regarding this seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. Not specifically the 15th, which was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. you see where the confusion can come in? See, the whole period of time was a Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the 15th itself was specifically referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If we to look at this, try and make it simple, on the 14th was the Feast of Passover, 15th, that Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was also a high Sabbath. No work whatsoever was permitted. And the 14th and the 21st days, Holy Convocation, certain work was permitted on those days. So this seven-day period of time in which they were to celebrate and they were to remember all that God had accomplished and delivering them from Egypt and everything else. But all of that was, of course, just looking forward to what would be accomplished on Calvary. Now, Leviticus speaks to the children of Israel and saith And when you shall be coming to the land, we looked at this a moment ago, I will give unto you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave of the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted of you on the morrow after the Sabbath. Now this is another area where some people maybe get a little confused when they're looking at these things and trying to piece it together. Because why didn't God just say the 16th? We've got the 14th, the feast of Passover, 15th, the feast of unleavened bread. So why not just say the 16th? Well, because it might not be the 16th. Because it's not just referring to that day before, which was a high Sabbath. You see, if the 16th itself was a Sabbath... We could have the 16th, the next day would be the day after the Sabbath. That would work. But you see, that's not specifically what they're told here. Again, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 16. Seven weeks shall thou number unto thee. Begin to number the seven weeks from such a time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn. So that's a working day. Robert Anderson made this comment. He said, The Lord commanded that the sheaf of the first fruits should be waved before the Lord on the day after the Passover Sabbath. And from that day, the seven weeks were counted, which ended with the Feast of Pentecost. But as the book of Deuteronomy expressly ordains that the weeks should be counted from the first day of the harvest, the verse we've just got there, it is evident that the day after the Sabbath should not be itself a Sabbath, but a working day. Again, if we look at this, if we assume that the day... After the weekly Sabbath it was in question, well, okay, we'd have the 16th would be falling on the Sunday there. But it may be that if, for example, the Feast of Unleavened Bread fell on a Sunday, you may not get the Feast of First Fruits for another week. You have a, a period of time. So that's why the 14th was a fixed date, the 15th was a fixed date for those two feasts, but the Feast of First Fruits could occur at any time up to a week later. But it would always occur on a Sunday, which would be the day following the Sabbath, which would always be a working day. Now, I'm laying some foundation here because next week you'll see how these things tie together incredibly in the details. (coughs) You're familiar, I'm sure, at times. There's things we we come up in life that that don't make sense or they shouldn't be. Just have a look at that for a second. The, The blue button is true, says the red button. And The blue button says, the red button is false. Just think about that for a moment. Or maybe not. You've seen things like this as well, which just don't also make sense. They're not quite how they should be. And life is full of things like that. But the Bible's got a number of these things as well. And one that we're really interested in here is the fact that Jesus came to be king of the nations and king of Israel. I mean, back in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Gabriel announces to Mary that her child is going to sit on the throne of David. And yet Jesus refuses to allow the people to make him king. Do you remember after he feeds the 5,000, they want to take him and make him king? Wouldn't you think, this is a great opportunity? But he just walks away from them. In fact, it actually discourages people from saying who he was. Have you noticed that when he does the miracles... Jesus says, no, no, don't don't say anything. I mean, it was the worst PR tactic imaginable. Jesus has come to be the king of kings. He's come to be the king of Israel. And all these opportunities, and he's kind of letting them go. Let's just look at a few of these. In John chapter 2, right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus, the marriage in Cana in Galilee, he turns this water into wine, and Mary comes up to him and says, you know, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? And he says, Mine hour is not yet come. Now that's an interesting and very telling statement. Now Jesus does go ahead and and do this, but nobody really knew that it was Jesus that had done it apart from those that were close to him. Well, we come to to Mark's gospel. There came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou can make me clean. Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, and said unto him, I will, be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and said unto him, See, thou say nothing to any man. Don't say that I did this. Don't tell them who I am. This is bizarre. And Mark again. For he had healed many, insomuch as they pressed upon him for to touch him, and as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. But wouldn't you think that Jesus would want to be made known? That people could then accept him and say, Yes, you are the Messiah? Like in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Ephrathah, that is, be open. And straight away his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. It's not going all that well because we read, but the more he charged them so much, the more a great deal they published it. Now people just couldn't keep this quiet, but Jesus was intent on trying to play down the things that he was doing. Oh, we've got so many of these. I'll leave these to be in the notes. We'll put them up on the web later if you want to go through all the scriptures and look at them. But Matthew 8, 2-4. to This leper that is healed, he says, See thou tell no man. Matthew 9. These eyes, blind eyes that are opened. The eyes were open, and Jesus straightly charged them saying, See that no man knows it. Know it. Matthew 12. He charged them that they should not make him known. Again, this is after the feeding the five thousand. Mention this. They wanted to make him king. It says that they would come and take him by force to make him king. And he departed again into a mountain himself alone. You see, Jesus knew that he had a mission to accomplish. Again, just picking up verse fifty-six of Luke eight. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Now we get to Matthew sixteen. He says unto them. But whom say you that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then a few verses later we read, Then charged he his disciples that they should not that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? Isn't that what we would have wanted the disciples to do? And again, they're all in the synagogue in Nazareth. They don't like what Jesus is saying. Verse 29, they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill whereon their city was built that they might cast him down a Get the picture here. These people are furious at Jesus because of the things he's saying. These religious leaders, they take him to the top of this hill. I'll show you in a second. And we read, but he passing through the midst of them went his way. Can you imagine the scenario? This is, they always is refer to as Mount Precipice, overlooking the Valley of Jezreel, or what we would refer to sometimes as the Valley of Armageddon. Bear in mind, Jesus grew up just down the other side of this hill, and as a child would have easily been able to walk up and look across this whole landscape, this Valley of Armageddon, which is destined one day to be the staging post for one of the biggest battles the world will ever know. But Jesus is effectively brought to the top of this hill. And if you look at it, that doesn't really give you the justice of the scale, but it is really steep drop off this. And they take Jesus to the top, and then he just walks through the midst of them, and everybody kind of like moves out of the way and lets him go past. Jesus, seemingly, is untouchable. Now, again, so many of these things. They want him to make himself known, and he says, My time is not yet come. They sought to take him, but again, the religious leaders, but no man laid hands on him because his hour's not yet come. John 8 again. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Jesus seemingly was being supernaturally protected so that nobody could touch him or harm him or do anything because everything was getting ready for a very specific moment. Again, just just passes by through the crowds as they're trying to accost him. Verse 21 of Matthew 16, from that time forth began Jesus to show to his disciples, and up is Caesarea Philippi And Jesus is now showing them that they're going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things to the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now this is really important because it's so clear what we're being told here. You see, just just we're going to jump to some of the things we'll look at next week, but just to give you a quick taste of this, the third day is when Jesus rose from the dead. There's no debate on that, no question. Well, before the third day comes the second day. I'm sure you're you're all right with that. Before the second day would come, anybody has a guess? First day, very good. Before that, you've got effectively day zero, and then you've got obviously days preceding that, because we've got a whole week we've got to account for here. We're going to try and piece the details together. We know the resurrection occurred on the third day. That means the crucifixion occurred on effectively day zero. We know that the first day of the week was the Sunday. That means the day before that was the Saturday, the day before that was the Friday, means the day of the crucifixion, without any debate, was the third day. And there's dozens of ways that we can demonstrate and show this from Scripture. Jesus, as he said to his disciples, was going to rise again on the third day. So, quick summary. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. He was looking forward to a specific hour. And because of this, he didn't want the people to make him known before the right time. But as the right time approaches, he starts to head towards Jerusalem. Well, as we come to John's Gospel we find we get to the hour. John chapter 12, Jesus said to them, the hour is come. You notice all the way through, my hour is not yet come. It's not yet the time, but now he says, the hour is come. If the disciples have been paying attention, at this point, they probably just breathed a sigh of relief. Finally, that the Son of Man should be glorified. But then he says, now is my soul trouble. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Jesus saying, this is the moment, this is the reason. What was so special about this hour or this particular day? Well, if you do a study in John's Gospel, you'll realize that this day was the day that we would celebrate today. Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday is the triumphal entry as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. So what was so special about this day? Well, let's just look at a few scriptures. On the next day, the most people that were come, to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, save now. That's what they were singing. Blessed is the King of Israel. They recognized him as their king, that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, a young donkey, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's coals. These things understood not his disciples. At the first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered, they, these things that were written of him, and they had done these things unto him. Now, that prophecy come from Zechariah 9. nine. rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And then we read verse 29, back in Luke 19, that it came to pass, that when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany... At the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go you into the village over against you, in the which you're entering, you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And the disciples are going, are You sure about this? Or what if somebody says, What are you doing? And so Jesus says, And if any man asks you, Why do you loose him? Thus you shall say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. So these disciples trot off to go and find his donkey. And They that were sent went their way and found everything even as they said. That's amazing. Now, you've got to picture this. All through Jesus' ministry, Jesus has said, see that you don't make me known. Don't tell anybody. But now, he said, the hour has come. And now he arranges this. He actually goes and gets his disciples to go and borrow this donkey. And we read verse 37, And when he was come nigh even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees get what's going on. and they, From the, the multitude, they say unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. They're saying you're a king. You're, they're saying you're the Messiah. <laughs> Jesus answered and said unto them, I tell you, that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. At home on my shelf, I have a stone that came from this walkway down from the Mount of Olives. One of those stones that never got that opportunity to cry out. Because these individuals, these people that were lined in the streets, did praise him. They did rejoice. Of course, the Pharisees didn't like this one bit. And they recognized what was going on, but Jesus didn't stop them. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou had known, even thou, at least in this thy day, such an important day this was, the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench round about thee, and encompass thee round about, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground. And thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Speaking of that final destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in AD 70. Now notice again, Jesus makes the point that this was a very specific day. He said, you didn't recognize this day. You didn't know the time of your visitation. Yeah, there's a few people on the roadside that did, but the majority of the city are oblivious to what's going on you see this is as we refer to it now Palm Sunday and for the first time in his ministry Jesus allows himself to be worshipped and hailed as the King the Messiah Jesus doesn't only allow it he arranges the whole event so what was so special about this day why did Jesus hold them accountable for knowing what day it was you see Jesus is saying you should have known you should have known what this day was what day was it Oh, we're going to look at that next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there are so many wonders and truths contained therein. We thank you, Lord, for these models and these types. These things that, Lord, just speak of all of your design. That, Lord, you are in complete control of history. Father, help us to be so sure, so confident. That, Lord, we have no hesitation. Lord, your word says we should have a reason for the hope that is in us. And Lord, we have a multitude of reasons. And the Lord, we be with us, we pray, as we go from here this day through this week. And Lord, as we ponder these things, as we go through, Lord, the days of this week, thinking of all that you accomplished, not only that ride into Jerusalem, but those journeys out each evening to Bethany, having that costly oil poured upon your feet, seeing Judas sneak out to go and betray you, bringing back a armed guard the next day following a Passover celebration and then being arrested and beaten and crucified for us. Lord, help us to just spend time this week thinking of all that you have done for us because of your great love for us. Lord, we just thank you for all of these things now. Keep us close to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.